Hi, and welcome back to Wonder Women, a podcast that tells the stories of inspirational women in history you may never have heard of. I'm Dominique Roberts. And I'm Megan Armconnect. Okay, so today's episode, we actually are going to talk about a woman that many people actually have heard of, Olympic champion Wilma Rudolph. And I just want to take a quick second before we delve in to say that discussions about race and discrimination are absolutely essential to the story. And so after some consideration, I will be using the term African-American despite not knowing the actual lineage of Wilma's ancestors because it is my understanding that this is currently the most widely accepted term. Now, actually, a lot of people know the basics of her story. She was crippled with polio when she was young and she was told she would never walk again and then went on to win three Olympic gold medals in track and field in a single Olympics. But there's so much more to this woman and to her story than this, and so I think she's a great person to discuss today and really delve deeper behind what was presented in the press. So let's jump in. She was born in Tennessee in 1940, and she was actually the 20th child of her father's 22 children oh, from wow. two marriages. Yes, so she already had 19 older siblings by the time she was born. Her father was a railroad porter, so we can imagine that his salary was stretched pretty thin across 22 children. Yeah, I'm sure. So Wilma grew up in Clarksville, Tennessee, which was an African-American neighborhood. So she had no electricity, no central heating, no indoor plumbing. Her family used an outhouse, and they used kerosene lamps. So Clarksville is in Tennessee, so that means that Wilma was growing up in the South, which at this time was still legally segregated. This is when we hear that phrase, separate but equal, and I don't think we even need to remind everyone that obviously it was not equal. These rules, so like, even though the Civil War was won, like in 1865, even though slavery had been abolished in the United States, that the segregation was still happening even like 100 years after the end of the Civil War, right? Like these laws were being created even like in the 1870s, 1880s. Yeah, and so almost 100 years later, Tennessee is still being ruled by the same rules that were passed shortly after the Civil War. And this applied to everything, bathrooms, drinking fountains, schools, public transportation, restaurants, hospitals, everything. And I just want to point out, you know, the North was segregated as well, but just in practice rather than legally. But the South was officially and legally segregated when Wilma was growing up. Wilma was born two months premature, and so she was a really frail and sickly child. She had double pneumonia, measles, mumps, chicken pox, and by four years old, polio had left her with a crippled leg. And in fact, her leg was so badly damaged that her mother was told she would never walk. And her school wouldn't let her enroll until she could walk. I'm assuming because as an African-American public school in the South, it was underfunded and didn't have the capacity or the facilities to accommodate disabilities. And, of course, because of segregation, Wilma wasn't allowed to go to the white hospital, and the African-American hospital in her town didn't treat polio. So she was left literally with no access to appropriate medical care in her hometown. So you'll probably go into this later. I'm really curious in how, because um, just knowing her story, that she does end up being an Olympic runner, like how she overcame that or how her mother helped with that. Like, I'll be really fascinated to hear that. Yeah, so actually it was largely because of her mother. Her mother worked several jobs cooking and cleaning to support such a large family, but she still made the sacrifice for years to take Wilma on a bus all the way to Nashville to go to an African-American hospital that did treat polio. Oh, and just, do we know how far away Nashville is from where she... I think it's a several-hour bus ride. Okay, so that's a... No, for yeah, sure. Yeah, but that's, that's quite the commitment. But I think in, in that time when her mother was responsible for 22 children and worked doing manual labor. It was, yeah, it was a really big sacrifice absolutely. to the family that for, for two years almost, her mother would take her on these trips to Nashville. Absolutely, yeah. <clears throat> and then her mother would also come home from you know these really long days of work and took the time to massage Wilma's leg every night to stimulate her circulation. What a woman. Like, this yeah. is the Wonder Woman, too. Yeah, definitely. So, her mom. Yeah, her yeah. mom's also. 
And it was because of her mother's dedication and perseverance that convinced Wilma that she could walk again one day. You know, Wilma once told reporters, my doctors told me I would never walk again. My mother told me I would. I believed my mother. So just a thought as well, and just like when you're talking about her mother, I think sometimes this is something that I specifically some people like Anne-Marie Slaughter have talked about recently, but just like caregivers and caretakers in society and how often we forget about their importance. But I just, mm-hmm. with you telling the story, I'm reminded how important Wilma's mother was to this entire story. The, the caretaking that is so often forgotten mm-hmm. in, um, in, like, in the history books. Yeah, so. 100%. It, it definitely wouldn't have happened without her mother mm-hmm. um, and without her mother refusing to accept that initial verdict of, oh, Wilma will never walk again. And also you can't be treated at the White Hospital. And also the African-American Hospital doesn't treat polio, so you have no options. Mm-hmm. So Wilma's brother was right, and by seven years old, Wilma could walk with leg braces on, and she began school. And I just want to point out that leg braces for polio in those days were these really heavy, really heavy contraptions that had this big clunky shoe attached to them. So uh-huh. it's not difficult to imagine Wilma as a young girl not not wanting to wear them, yeah, absolutely. even though they helped her. And so Wilma would secretly try walking without her brace and shoe when her parents mm. weren't looking. And by 12 years old, she didn't even need the leg brace anymore. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, so as soon as she's free of her brace, she immediately wants to play sports. She didn't actually make the high school basketball team her first year, but her dad told the coach that if Wilma wasn't on the team, her older sister couldn't be either. And so Wilma's led on the team, but she's benched and not put in a single game. Then the high school basketball coach started a track team, and apparently Wilma liked track because she couldn't be benched and she didn't have to wait to be put in. Mm. So she works really hard in both sports, and she eventually becomes a starter in basketball too. And this is actually where she's scouted by Ed Temple, who is the man who created the women's track team at Tennessee State University, which at the time was an all-African-American college in Nashville. So Ed Temple scouts her at this high school basketball game, sees a lot of potential, and he decides to bring Wilma to the TSU summer running training. And at only 16 years old, she's by far the youngest girl there. Oh, wow, she's only 16. Yeah, she's only 16 at this time. I just want to also mention, you know, ladies' athletics was was really different in that era. Remember, we're we're talking about the 1950s, and it was still expected that women, athletes or not, behaved like ladies. You know, the coach's motto is apparently, act like a lady, run like crazy. So she trains all summer long with the university, and for the first time, she's able to leave Tennessee and travel around the country. That year... And so now we're talking about 1956. At only 16 years old, she attends the Olympic trials in Seattle and she makes the team to compete in the 1956 Olympics in Melbourne, Australia. That's quite an accomplishment. And like the first time trying out for the Olympics as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. She, not only that, she's the youngest member of the team. And this is only four years after she was in a polio leg brace. You know, she qualifies wow. for the Olympics as a sprinter having been, you know, classified as a crippled child only four years earlier. So it's really incredible. Just a little side fun fact about the 1956 Melbourne Olympics. They were named the Friendly Games because an Australian teenager wrote to the Olympic Committee and suggested that the athletes mingle in the closing ceremonies parade instead of marching with their teams, which is a tradition that's still followed today. So when we watch the Olympics and the closing ceremonies, everyone's sort of mingled together. Uh And that's all because some kid in Australia wrote to the committee and suggested that. I thought that was a pretty interesting um, interesting. little anecdote. 
So Wilma goes to Australia for the Olympics, and Australia wasn't segregated at this time, and this is the first time that she experiences true integration, because she had been to compete in the Northern American states, but we have to remember that even though the North didn't legally enforce segregation, discrimination was still practiced, and it was still rampant, and segregation existed in, in a lot of other ways, even in the North. Although Australia might have been more inclusive than when she was used to, she still faced discrimination in the press. And discrimination wasn't just around race, but also around gender and femininity as well. You know, at all times, Wilma had to reassure the public that she was a young lady, you know, almost despite her athletic achievements. It definitely was not seen to be a positive thing to be extremely strong or have athletic build. An example of this is the LA Times published this ridiculous photo of Wilma and two other Olympians running on a track. And the two guys are in full track suits, as you'd expect, but Wilma is in full stockings and a skirt and heels. That's such a, I don't know, <laughs> it's just a strange thing to I, me, too. I know, I don't know. I, it's it was, a different time. I don't know if I it was guess, meant but, to be yeah, a joke, yeah, know. but it was, it was definitely a different era. Yeah. Another example of this um, is just before the Olympics, New York Times columnist Arthur Paley, right? So this is the New York Times, uh-huh. wrote, Women are really wonderful. They make devoted mothers, charming wives, and delightful daughters. When they try to be athletes, however, they make misogynists out of sports writers. Oh. So, yeah. So we we see a lot of the press coverage around Wilma and other female Olympians focusing on what they're wearing, how their hair is styled, how gracious and charming they are, rather than commenting on their athletics or their strength or determination. So that's that's really interesting because we actually see that i think today in the press still like reporters will comment on what a woman is wearing or like how especially and this is especially like in politics right that like Mm -hmm. you know very much like how she presents herself Mm -hmm. versus what is she actually saying and Mm -hmm. i think that i think that happens so often to women so much more than men yeah today yeah we saw yeah we see an extreme here around surrounding female athletes but you're right it's absolutely still relevant today i mean just in the presidential election last year Mm -hmm. all the commentary on what hillary clinton was wearing and how her hair was done and her highlights and her makeup and whether she was or wasn't wearing makeup and Mm -hmm. and there's no commentary on bernie sanders or his shoe choice or his hair or whether his shirt is you know perfectly tucked in or not so yeah yeah, so if, if it's happening today, we can imagine how magnified it was Absolutely. in the 1950s yeah. and for an African-American mm-hmm. girl from the South. Yeah. So Wilma helps her team, helps the U.S. Relay win bronze in the Australian Olympics. She goes back to her high school as a star, but remember the 1956 games weren't televised yet. Oh. And so she's by no means a national star or even really a big star in her hometown because the Olympics at this point, of course they're cool, but they're not on TV, so people aren't following them with the same attention that that we associate the Olympics with today. That's really interesting. So she does something really cool, she comes back, it's exciting, but it's not to the it's, same it's extent. Not, it's not life-changing, Yeah. No. So she goes back home, she leads her basketball team through an undefeated season, she wins every one of her high school track meets, and then she experiences a tragedy. Her good friend and basketball teammate is killed in a car crash on the night of prom. And you know, this would be something that would be difficult for anyone to deal with, but keep in mind, she's still a teenager when this is all happening. Now, this is the part of the story that's almost always left out, but I personally think it's one of the most important parts because it shows just how unlikely and remarkable her career was. In 1958, her senior year of high school, she's offered a scholarship at TSU to run, but she finds out that she's pregnant and she's due to have a baby that summer. Oh, wow. She hides the pregnancy for a while, but her high school coach notices she's slowing down and gaining weight and convinces her to tell her family. Mm. 
Her father bans her boyfriend from her life. She drops out of basketball and track, of course, because she's pregnant. But she still manages to graduate high school in May. Just two months later, she has a baby girl. Wow. Apparently, Coach Temple at TSU has a rule of absolutely no mothers in the track team. But he makes an exception for Wilma. I'm sure the fact that she's an Olympic bronze medalist had something to do with it. You'd think that all this intense drama and the fact that she had a baby would set her athletic career back a bit. But, you know, Wilma ran faster than ever after childbirth. Yeah, she wasn't just a mother and an Olympic athlete. She had to work hard as a student, too, and she had to work an on-campus job to maintain her scholarship. Just, oh, can I ask? Yeah. Um, so was she taking care of her baby girl, a single mother at this she, time? Yeah, she was not. She, um, Her sister was taking care of the baby okay. at first, and then her sister wanted to adopt the baby, so Wilma and the boyfriend in the middle of the night go and get the baby from the sister in Missouri and leave the baby with oh, the wow. mother. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of drama that she yeah, has to deal absolutely. with as a student. But it doesn't derail her, and just two years later, in 1960, she breaks a world record and sets off for her second Olympic Games in Rome. Now, the Rome Olympics were the first Olympics broadcast on television. They were broadcast by CBS. Okay. And CBS would tape the most important events in Rome and then rush the tapes to their studios in New York City to be broadcast across the nation. Mm -hmm. So this is the first time that Americans are watching Wilma and all of her entirely African-American relay team representing the U.S. and winning for the U.S. from their own living rooms. You know, it's the first time they see a young boxer from Louisville, Kentucky named Cassius Clay, later known as Muhammad Ali. Ah, uh, mm -hmm. Wilma easily wins the 100-meter final, setting a new world record and winning gold. She runs it in 11 seconds and instantly becomes an international celebrity. I can't even imagine running that fast. <laughs> the life of me. I know, like, yeah, 11 <laughs> seconds. What is that? Yeah. She then wins the gold medal in the 200 meters. She's the anchor of the relay, and there's this dramatic bad handoff between her and the runner before. And remember, this is the first time it's televised, so it would have been extremely exciting to watch these tense moments on TV. But she just barely finishes first and wins her third gold medal. Now, I have to briefly interrupt to point out that she's often said to be the first American woman to win three gold medals in one Olympic Games. The New York Times said it actually twice. Her biography channel special said it. Even her Wikipedia page says it. But she's actually not the first. Bethelda Bleetbury won three gold medals in swimming in the 1920 Antwerp Olympics, and then Helen Madsen won three in swimming in the 1932 LA Olympics. Wilma Rudolph, however, was the first American woman to win three golds in track and field in one Olympics, and she was certainly the first African-American woman to win three golds, period, for the U.S. in a single Olympics. Which is massive in its own right. Yeah, I, so. I think that her mm -hmm. accomplishments, I mean, they are... They speak for themselves. They speak for themselves, yeah. they're inspiring as they are, and we don't need to leave these two other women sort of out of the athletic history. Mm -hmm. They're all extremely impressive. So Wilma wins these three gold medals, it's seen on TV, and she's a press sensation all over the world. She's named Woman Athlete of the Year, she gets the Italian Award for the Most Outstanding International Sports Personality. Something I find really interesting is there's absolutely no mention of her daughter in the press. I don't um, know if it was a secret or if it just wasn't relevant. Her biography channel short video online leaves out any mention of her daughter too. I mean, you know, when you hear about her story, there's never any mention of the fact that she had a daughter at this point, but that's part of what I find really inspiring. You know, she went on to win three gold medals and attend Tennessee State University after having a baby right out of high school. To me, that's one of the most inspirational parts. Yeah. Um, and I don't know why it's left out. I think in 2018, we can more than handle the full and complete history that she was an Olympic athlete and a mother at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, this all happened right out of high school. 
And to be honest, that's where most accounts of her life leave it. She goes from being disabled to a superstar and the story just ends there. But what I think is really interesting and worth discussing is what happens when she returns home. Because here we're talking about a girl from one of America's most segregated communities representing the US under the American flag three times. And of course, it was all on TV for the first time. So you can just imagine Americans across the country, North and South, racist and not, watching that American flag be raised as the national anthem plays with Wilma right there on the middle podium, wearing that gold medal that meant she was not only the best in America, she was the best in the world. Clarksville's welcome home for Wilma is a really big deal because we're talking about a legally and officially segregated southern state. New York City had previously held a big celebration for African-American athletes like Jesse Owens and Althea Gibson, but that was the North. And we can compare those celebrations with Mildred McDonald's return to Atlanta, where there was more press coverage over McDonald's taking off her shoes in the opening ceremonies than her winning a gold medal. When Muhammad Ali returned home to Kentucky, the mayor commented on his nice manner and called him a swell kid, but apparently didn't have time to throw him a banquet reception. So all eyes are on Clarksville and how it will handle Wilma's big homecoming, and so they hold the biggest parade in the town's history and a banquet for Wilma, which was actually the first ever integrated event in Clarksville. Hmm. And because everyone knew that Clarksville would be in the spotlight, the mayor and the local white papers actively encouraged participation from both races and took it as an opportunity to show how, quote, inclusive Clarksville and the American South was, which obviously was, you know, a charade, right? Yeah. Rumor is that Wilma insisted the parade be integrated and actually refused to attend a segregated parade, but we can't actually confirm if the original plans were for a segregated parade or not. So obviously, um, her hometown recognized the importance of this, mm-hmm. um, of this press frenzy. But mm-hmm. was there what did she receive more coverage outside of Clarksville? Yeah, definitely. You know, there's absolutely a media frenzy around Wilma. In in Chicago, Mayor Richard Daley gives her the keys to the city. She meets President JFK at the White House, and then as sort of the culminating press tour, Wilma sent on a U.S. goodwill tour throughout Africa. And this is when the civil rights movement is really gaining momentum at home. Mm. And so when Wilma returns home from this, you know, U.S. goodwill tour through Africa, she participates in a segregation protest in her hometown. And the really sad irony of this was, you know, she'd been given a key to the city, but she was still refused service in a restaurant. Yeah, so it's like, what is, like, there's a symbolic, like gesture of integration but in reality these practicalities yeah are still being fought out yeah and and she was you know Clarksville was so happy to use her as this example of how cool inclusive they were and throw her this mm. big parade but then she comes home from being sent on you know another charade this U.S. goodwill tour through Africa and she comes home and she and certainly her siblings and and her friends can't can't be served in a restaurant so I guess in other like broader themes that are happening at this time this is happening in the middle of the cold war right yeah and and actually megan you lived in ukraine for a while and you've done a lot of research in in russian history um can you explain a little bit more about you know what the cold war was yeah yeah i can definitely um describe that a bit so basically the cold war happened right after World War II. And the Cold War was really an ideological war between the United States and the Soviet Union about which systems of um, government and of values were better. And so there, there was like a, there was an arms race associated with it, but there was also a cultural war, an mm-hmm. ideological war um, and, and battles associated with it. 
So in the context of the Cold War, African-American athletes were part of America's projected image to the world of this, quote, inclusive democracy. And so Wilma Rudolph was actually used as an example of the so-called American dream. I mean, she was literally used. Her story was the subject of a 1961 United States Information Agency video that was globally distributed as proof of America's racial tolerance. Yeah, and just to go back to the context of the Cold War, the Soviets would often use American segregation to show how America wasn't this ideal of democracy. So if the American government is using her in that way, they are really using her to fight this Cold War. So on one hand, she can't be served in a restaurant in her hometown, and on the other hand, literally in the same year, the government is making a video promoting her as, as, as proof of, of America's racial tolerance. So yeah. the irony is not to be overlooked. After setting another world record, Wilma gracefully retires from running in 1962, actually just after winning a specially organized Cold War track meet against the Soviet Union. And this was a meet that was the U.S. versus the USSR, and so winning this specially organized Cold War track meet brings her even more into the spotlight as this representation of America and democracy and its freedoms. But adjusting back to life in Tennessee was difficult. Wilma told reporters, quote, you can become world famous and you sit with kings and queens. You can't go back to living the way you did before because you've been taken out of one setting and shown the other. That becomes a struggle and it makes you struggle, hmm. quote. And this struggle is almost always left out of her history, but I think it's an important part of a realistic discussion about what it really meant to, on one hand, represent America and freedom, and on the other hand, experience such discrimination for being both African-American and a woman athlete. Women had trouble making money, you know, because endorsements were rare to begin with, and they simply were not offered to an African-American woman athlete. Yeah, and that's such an important thing as an athlete, especially an Olympic mm -hmm. athlete, to get those endorsements. She, she didn't make money from her running at all. She received her bachelor's in education from TSU. She was the first in her family to receive a college degree. She marries her high school sweetheart and the father of her baby, and she starts as a second grade teacher. Mm. And over the following years, she had four more children, and she changed jobs and moved around the country many, many times. Eventually, she gets divorced and is a single mother of four, struggling to pay her bills and find work that really fulfills her, despite being one of America's biggest heroes. You know, and as you were just saying, this is a very different situation than the athletes of today, who can really capitalize on their fame during their athletic careers. Yeah. So where did she end up? So she was elected to the Black Sports Hall of Fame in 1980, and two years later, she founded the Wilma Rudolph Foundation, which is dedicated to organizing community track and field teams. And then she was inducted into the U.S. Olympic Hall of Fame in 1984 and coached track at DePaul University, worked as a radio talk show host. She was the vice president of a Baptist hospital in Nashville. And actually, President Bill Clinton named her one of the great ones at the first National Sports Awards. She did pass away from brain cancer in 1994. And Sports Illustrated, the day after she died, published this quote. The Wilma Rudolph story is the stuff of fairy tales, only in her case, the fairy tale came true. And I think this is an important quote because, uh, at least in my opinion, her story was not a fairy tale. It yeah, was, it's, it's it was very real and very messy. Yeah, it was, so. it was very far from it. Her success was not the product of, you know, luck or magic. It was the result of dedication and hard work and perseverance against all odds. And in despite of all the obstacles, she so gracefully overcame. I think sometimes maybe perhaps we think it's a fairy tale because we end her story 
with her getting the gold medal. Yeah, the that, that's that's where it leaves off. And, mm-hmm. and the press paints this very rosy picture of, oh, she went from having polio to being an Olympic sprint champion. Which is incredible. Which but... is incredible, and that's where it ends. But it leaves out really key details, like the fact that she overcame polio, but it but she couldn't get access to to a hospital in her hometown that would even treat it. You know, it leaves mm-hmm. out all these really, you know, almost gruesome details of the obstacles that she actually had to overcome to make this so-called fairy tale come true. Yeah. So I think that's really important that we talk about a, a realistic and well-rounded story of, of Wilma Rudolph and her success instead of Absolutely. this polished, oh, isn't it amazing? Isn't this an American dream? You can be born with polio and come from a small town in Tennessee and then end up this great sports hero in the Olympic Hall of Fame. And I mean, just pass over all these details details in between. Mm -hmm. In 1997, the state of Tennessee, the same state that once denied her medical treatment in a white hospital and service in a white restaurant, named June 23rd Wilma Rudolph Day. Well, she definitely makes me feel really lazy and unaccomplished, and her story is definitely inspiring to me, and I hope that you all thought so as well. Well, thanks so much for listening, and we hope you tune in next time. Wonder Women is edited by Dominique Roberts with original music by Matthew Gregory.